You're listening to a sermon from the Spring Midtown Church in Phoenix, Arizona. If you'd like to learn more about the Spring and its ministry, please visit thespringmidtown.org or follow us on Instagram or Facebook. Good morning, you guys. Good morning, the Spring Midtown. It's good to see you all. Good to be in person with you, even though I know we're wearing masks, and that's a little bit weird. Uh, also, those of you who are watching online, we're glad that we have the technology we do uh, to get to do this today. Uh, this music stands finicky for me. Let's see if it holds up. Your Bible's too heavy. Too, too big of a Bible. Too spiritual. It's a good problem to have, though. In case you guys <laughs> um, yeah, friends, we're glad that you're here. We're glad that we have the technology we have. And God's love is not contained by a building uh, or a, a location. Uh, it moves through the technologies uh, that we have. So uh, we're glad that you get to be here. Yeah, there's a, a fringe sport uh, that's been on my mind recently uh, here in life, uh, especially as I've been preparing for this sermon. That's called orienteering. Those of you that are more outdoorsy here, you may have heard of orienteering. Those of you that haven't, uh, here's generally how orienteering works. Uh, there's a course that gets laid out over diverse types of terrain, uh, over deserts, over forests. And within that course, there are a variety of markers, checkpoints or flags that are scattered around. And each competitor, each orienteer, as they're called, is tasked with navigating the course as quickly as possible, hitting all of the checkpoints as quickly as they can and then returning to where they started. And the unique thing about orienteering is that the orienteers don't have too much familiarity with the course itself. It's foreign to them, largely. And so they're actually only tasked with, well, given two things to accomplish their task. The first is this mysterious and ancient object called a compass. Most of us don't even realize that we actually all have compasses in our uh, pockets right now. Our phone has a compass on it. It basically tells you the direction you're going and will tell you how to get the direction you need to go if you need to change direction. Uh, and the second thing they're given is an orienteering map. Now this map lays out in great detail what the course looks like. Uh, it gives them detail on the terrain that they're trying to navigate and it shows them where all of the checkpoints are so that they can navigate the course quickly. And you're probably already thinking like this Sport takes a lot of different skills. It takes some degree of athleticism, right? You're gonna have to run, you're gonna have to race. It also takes some creativity because you have to be able to look at a map and identify the terrain around you and we'll try to figure out how quickly you can move through a course. You also have to have some level of mental and emotional fortitude, right? Because at some point you're gonna feel lost. You're gonna feel confused. Uh, you're at least gonna feel unfamiliar with where you currently are. But I think more than anything, uh, orienteering is unique because it requires trust in something beyond yourself. It, it can't be accomplished without trust beyond yourself. And that's different than many other sports. Right? We just got done recently watching LeBron James, uh, the best basketball player in the world, win his fourth NBA Finals. It was terrific. But we praise him because he was able to summon the inner will to overcome obstacles. And some of those obstacles were even his teammates. Uh, many people will say LeBron overcomes obstacles to win. But orienteering is a little bit different. It's not about summoning inner will. It's about believing and trusting that your compass and your map are reliable and putting your trust in those things. And I think orienteering is a lot like the Christian life. That's actually one reason why we've started this sermon series here. We want to be people who, in the midst of a world that's largely foreign to us, in the middle of terrain that's difficult to navigate, we want to be people who are oriented by a compass and a map. And thankfully, Jesus gives us 
those things. So turn with me in the Bible, if you would, to Matthew chapter 6. Uh, we're going to be in the book of Matthew today. Uh, we're in the middle of this series, Lord, Teach Us to Pray. And we're going through what Christians have called the Lord's Prayer. Uh, so if you have a physical Bible, great. If you have an app, that works as well. I'll be reading from Matthew chapter 6, verses 7 through 13. When you're praying, do not keep up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard because of their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. Pray, then, in this way. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And do not bring us to the time of the trial that rescue us from the evil. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thanks be to God. Absolutely. Uh, this is a prayer that has been prayed throughout Christian history over and over and over. We pray it every week at this church. We're familiar with it, many of us. But I think sometimes familiarity can actually breed forgetfulness. I think sometimes we can forget the power and the weight that lie behind these words. And I know that that's true because it's been true for me. I've had these words memorized for nearly a decade in my life, and yet so often I pray them methodically without really thinking about the weight they carry. And I'm not against memorization, memorizing this prayer, memorizing scripture, good things to do, but memorization is a means to an end. Memorization is a structure that we have in order to become closer to the Lord. That's the end game, and that's actually why Jesus gives us this prayer here. He says to pray in this way. That's what he says right before he starts this structure here. That's like saying pray like this, or pray along these lines. He's not telling us that these are magic words that we kind of put in the right order so that God can hear us and give us the requests that we're putting up to him. That's not what he's saying about prayer. Instead, these words are given as a guide to become closer, to become formed by the person and character of the Lord. And so it becomes important for us as we go through, we're going through each week in this series, uh, different lines of this prayer. But as we do that, it's important to ask ourselves, what is this structure pointing me to? Not how important is, is memorizing the words, not how, how can I check off the things so that my prayer can be heard by God, but what's the end game? What's the thing that I learn about the person and character of God that forms my life? And today we're looking at the phrases, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. These are right in the middle of the prayer, and well, they kind of fit nicely into two different parts. So we'll start with your will be done. We live in a world of competing wills. Things vying for our allegiance all the time. And they're jockeying, right, in our minds and our hearts in order to get us to fall in line with their agendas. And that can often make it difficult for us to actually discern what it looks like to follow God's will. Because we hear so many other voices, right? We're inundated by so many things that it can be difficult to tell them apart or to know the direction we're actually going. There's a theologian named Henry Nowen. He lived in the 20th century. He talked about these different voices, these different wills that we feel in our lives, we hear in our lives. I've actually got a quote that we can throw up here uh, from him that talks about this. He says, We are surrounded by so much outer noise that it is hard to truly hear our God when he is speaking to us. We have often become deaf, unable to know when God calls us, and unable to understand in which direction. 
process. And I'm sure that resonates with many of us. You can probably think of the voices that were inundating you as soon as you woke up this morning. You can probably think of all of the voices that you encounter on your daily work or in your daily relationships. But this prayer here is calling for something different. It's calling for a precise will, namely God's will. And so it's important for us to evaluate what other wills exist, right? What other things are infringing upon me so that I can better identify them, push them away, and kind of correct course to hear God's will. And I think there's three general categories of wills that we feel in our lives. The first of these is outward wills. These are the wills of the world around us. So things like our country. Right? Our country demands allegiance and patriotism over and against well, many other things. Our political parties are outward wills. They tell us that our primary job is to vote a certain way. And if we don't do that, then the world will crumble beneath our feet. Our workplaces do something similar. They tell us that our primary job is to spend the bulk of our time working for the company, that the company's allegiance is the important thing. Even our advertising does this. Our advertising is full of outward wills, constantly telling us that we need to obtain certain things or accomplish certain things in order to find fulfillment. These things combine to make up what John Foreman of Switchfoot would say. I know there's a couple Switchfoot fans out there. John Foreman of Switchfoot would call this the symphony of modern humanity. We're constantly adding to the noise. There's a, a documentary that came out recently on Netflix. Pretty timely, actually. It's released. It's called The Social Dilemma. I heard a couple laughs. You probably watched it. You probably felt convicted by it. If you haven't watched it, you should, but beware. It's going to make you want to delete every social media account you have. Uh, it basically uh, is composed of interviews with a variety of different folks who have worked in the tech industry, and in particular, in social media companies. And they're kind of pulling the curtain away and showing us how social media works, how the internet actually works. And what we learned from the documentary is that, well, every time we open our computer or our phone and go to the internet, every time we open a social media app, we are inundated by different outward wills vying for our attention. So they listen to your conversations, they track your search histories, they keep a database of your likes and your comments, and they're drawing you towards one will or another. There's specific algorithms that people in this documentary talk about that are designed to get you to follow the will of something else. And so sometimes, well, that's just reinforcing what you already believe. It's, it's called cognitive biases. We have these things in our mind. When we see the thing that we already believe, it reinforces that belief over and over in us. And so social media sees, well, they believe this, they like this. So let's keep feeding it to them. Let's only show them this, and let's actually move them to more and more extreme views of what they already believe. Let's show them the, the other side of this and make them enemize the other side. Let's reinforce those things, and so it creates an echo chamber in our lives where we're only hearing one voice, one will. Sometimes it's not even that complicated. Sometimes it's just advertising, right? If you look at the margin of any social media app, you'll always see advertising after advertising. And advertisers actually have the ability to predict what you're going to want before you want it based on your activity online. And so they're already anticipating how do we get this person to follow our will, to buy our product. And if this sounds a little conspiracy theory-ish, this sounds a little crazy <laughs> to you, next time you go on a social media app, keep an eye out for it. Think about why does this person's post 
Why does this advertisement keep getting shown to me? Why is it that I only hear this perspective and not this perspective? And quickly, I think you'll learn there's outward wills constantly trying to grab at you. And I want to be clear and qualified. These things aren't all bad. Your country, not intrinsically a bad thing. It's not bad to desire the best thing for your country. It's not bad to want to have healthy political systems. It's not a bad thing. It's not bad to work hard for your company. But if those things become the primary aims of our lives, if those become the wills that we're seeking, then we will always find ourselves disillusioned and disappointed because if you live for any length of time, you know your country, your workplace, your political party, they let you down. They desert you. And so sometimes I think our mentality can be, well, all right, so outward wills, right? But the world around us, it doesn't quite fulfill us. But where do I go from there? I think in our world today, many of us tend to go to a second type of will, and that's the inward will. We move from an outward location to an inward location. These are the wills of our personal desires. Things like our, our individual pleasures, eating and drinking and doing whatever we want, whenever we want, right? the freedom that we have as individuals. Our careers become an inward will. We prioritize our personal advancement, making upward trajectory the primary aim of our lives. Sometimes it's just our comforts. Sometimes it's just being able to fill our lives with things that make it easier on us. I read an article about a recent toy that came out not too long ago. And I've actually got a picture because I think it's worth sharing with you guys. Uh, if we can throw it up there. These are uh, self-care Barbies. This is the newest edition of Barbies. Self-care Barbies. And so we've got uh, here on the far right, Wellness Dreams Barbie. Uh, she has a, a face mask and, and a, a pillow. Uh, sleep is naturally important. That's good. Uh, we've got a, a yoga and protein bar, Barbie. Uh, because finding your inner zen is important to self-care. Uh, we've got a, a spa and uh, candles Barbie. She comes complete with a magazine as well because treat yourself. <laughs> and then finally, we've got a, a pampering Barbie with, with a towel and a loofah. Uh, and lest you're worried, they all come with a little Barbie puppy. Because self-care can only happen with a puppy. And I, I'm being a little sarcastic, a little facetious, but truly, I, I want to make clear, self-care, not intrinsically a bad thing. In fact, I think the Bible advocates for certain types of self-care. It advocates for us to live mindful lives, to know what's going on in our souls and our hearts. Uh, it, it ultimately emphasizes that we are beloved by God, and we need to know that we're beloved, and we cannot live in God's freedom unless we know or love. But self-care can also become, well, just inward focus. It can become something in which we actually turn ourselves so far inward that we cease to live the outwardly loving life that we've been called to. In turning the eyes of our hearts entirely inward, we close them to the world around us. And if these inward wills guide us, if they become the primary, we will always get lost in the abyss of us. And again, none of these things are intrinsically bad. I'm not telling you not to sleep anymore. I'm not telling you to quit your yoga habit that you have. None of those things are intrinsically bad. However, if our primary motivation is our desires, we will always end up turning so far inward that we miss what God is doing in the world around us. There was a guy that lived a long time ago. His name was Ignatius. Uh, he started an order of Christian uh, men and thinkers called the Jesuits. 
Uh, they still exist to this day. They're still around. The Pope, current Catholic Pope, is a Jesuit. And Ignatius talked about the idea of disordered attachments. He basically said that sin is any time that we get our desires out of order. Any time that we supersede the will of God with any outward or inward will. And he said that when we do this, it produces a sort of unfreedom in us. Because those things always disappoint. So the process goes like this. You view the outward will and you uh, try to, to put all of your stock into it and then it lets you down. And so you think, well, I just need to double down on that thing. I'll do it again and I'll do it again. And it makes you a slave to the outward wills because it always leaves you hanging. And so some people think, well, it's just about the inward will, right? I, I just do the thing that, that I need to do for myself. But eventually, you'll find that you're missing everything around you. You're, you're going to be so lost in yourself that you become a slave to your desires. And so Ignatius talks about how real freedom doesn't come from following outward wills. It doesn't come from following inward wills. It comes from following an upward will. That's the third type of will. This is the will of the Lord. And I think that idea can be a little bit confusing for most of us, right? What is the will of God? How do I know the will of God? How can I know the mind of, of God? Well, thankfully, God came to earth in the person of Jesus to tell us precisely what his will is. That's actually what this whole section of scripture is about. This prayer is located smack dab in the middle of a sermon, Jesus' largest sermon that he gave when he was here on earth. It's called the Sermon on the Mount. And this sermon gives specific examples of what the will of God looks like and how we can actually follow it. Just a chapter before this, in Matthew 5, we learn that the upward will, the will of God, cares for and blesses the poor. And so we need to be people who care for and bless the poor if we're to live in this upward will. This upward will longs for goodness and righteousness, so we need to be people who long for goodness and righteousness. It emphasizes peacemaking rather than divisiveness. It has a deep respect and love for people to the degree where your thoughts and your heart matter just as much as your actions. It encourages the love of everyone, even your enemies. That is a radical, radical claim about this upward will. And it isn't self-seeking. It isn't self-righteous. It actually seeks to give up the self for the sake of others. And so we learn from Scripture just in this little section, and this is echoed over and over throughout the rest of the Bible, that the upward will is transforming us because it's the character of God. That's the thing that we're being guided to follow. And another thing that's important about this upward will is that it mandates allegiance over our other wills. That means that loving your enemy is more important than voting a certain way. Loving your enemy is more important than voting a certain way. Giving grace is more important than being right. Sacrificing for someone in need is more important than my spa day or my self-care barbies. Loving my neighbor is more important than hitting my next promotion. God's will transforms every part of our lives in the here and now. Nothing is outside of this upward will's reach. And that, should, that actually brings us to the next phrase in this prayer, right? Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. This will comes to earth. It brings heaven to earth. And so this statement right in the middle of this prayer from Jesus, on earth as it is in heaven, reminds us that prayer isn't just words. Jesus is essentially giving us a prayer structure that says, don't just pray. 
He's pointing us to the world around us and the importance of following the will of God in our actual lived experience. And so we learn that prayer and action have to go hand in hand in the Christian life. And that might seem a little disruptive, this idea of heaven coming to earth for us, because, well, if you've been raised in Christianity, you may have been taught to believe that heaven is just this distant place that I end up. And so I, I follow Jesus, and I, I do the thing that I need to do now so that I can end up walking some streets of gold and never having to sick again. It's kind of how we talk about heaven. That's how Christians sometimes talk about heaven. But this line in this prayer reminds us that heaven is actually meant to begin here and now. And Jesus affirms this all over the place in Scripture. In the book of Matthew alone, he uses the phrase kingdom of heaven 32 times. He says in Matthew 4, two chapters before this, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He doesn't say repent for someday when you die and escape this earth, you can end up in heaven. The emphasis of this action, the emphasis of this line in this prayer is to open our eyes to see heaven realized here and now. It's to see the recreation of the cosmos where all things are being redeemed and restored. And when we hear that, the recreation of the whole cosmos, right, it can seem a little big for us. It can seem like, man, how do I even start? And there's a, that's a, a worthwhile question. It's worthwhile to ask, okay, so what does that actually look like in my life, right? Well, first, a reminder to you, it's not your job to change the world. It's not your job as the individual to go and change everything that's wrong with this world. You don't have that onus on you. It's all about the spirit of God and participating with that spirit in the redeeming of this world. And so my job isn't to muster up the strength, right? To, to get it by sheer willpower. It's to entrust myself to the will of God in every aspect of my life and find the thing that's right in front of me to do. See, scripture tells us over and over that you, Actually, all of you are gifted by God with a particular set of skills. Not skills like me, Neeson, and take it, which is what we think of when we this, but real, real skills. Skills that can bring this kingdom of heaven here and now. And he's placed all of you in specific circumstances to have those skills kind of manifest in your life. I see teachers in this room. I see lawyers, I see government employees, I see financial consultants. I see a room of people that if they chose, if they really actively gave themselves over to the will of God and sought Him in everything they do, they could so build their lives full of Jesus' grace and love and goodness and peace and mercy that whenever, whenever anybody else looks at their lives, they'd say, that's heavenly. Whatever's going on with them, there's something otherworldly about that. That's the kingdom of heaven. And I've got a, a couple images that I want to share with you guys that I think illustrate this well. So uh, we gather every week right here in, in this space. Uh, and we gather also in community groups throughout the week. Uh, but the reality is those are a minority of our time, right? And so when we gather, this is generally what we look like, except we're a little more socially distanced now than just smudged into a corner. But... Uh, so you can see that the church is these, these green dots down in the bottom right-hand corner. These green dots make up every one of us here. And you can see that when we gather, well, those far gray dots can't really be reached. 
Whenever we're together, they can't be reached. Now, it's important for us to gather. It's important for us to remember and remind each other what Christ has done in our lives and is doing. But notice where most of our week actually happens. Go ahead and put up the next slide. Most of our week is the scattered church, right? It's all of us in our specific neighborhoods, in our specific workplaces. And you can find that, well, when we're scattered, we're actually able to reach way more of the gray dots. If each one of us is actually living actively in the will of God, if we're seeking out God's will to see all things restored and finding our gifts manifest in those things, well, we can reach way more of the world. The kingdom of heaven can become exponentially growing in our lives. And so Jesus is reminding us here that the will of God is not some foreign, pie-in-the-sky, ambiguous idea that we just hope will happen at something. It's actually a power working to reverse all of the fear and all of the pain and all the strife and decay and loneliness and anger in our world by bringing hope and healing and peace and wholeness in the community and love of heaven. And you know what's even more powerful? It's that you and you and you and you, all of you get to participate you get to join God in what he's already doing. He's been working before you woke up this morning, and he's going to keep working when you go to sleep tonight. You just get to join him in his work. There was a man who lived a long time ago. His name was Francis. And Francis lived a pretty lavish lifestyle. Uh, his father was a merchant, and so he had the finest clothes, the best food, and the best drinks possible. And he really lived an indulgent life. But pretty early on, he started to realize, man, these things aren't satisfying. Giving myself over to the outward wills or the inward wills, it's not giving me satisfaction that I'm longing for. And so he started to pray. He started to seek the will of God. And after a couple of years of earnest reflection and prayer, he felt God calling him to give up all of those things, to live a life of simplicity. And we call his, his followers the Franciscans. They're still around today, too. They choose to live a life of simplicity for the sake of serving and loving others, for the sake of preaching the gospel, both with their words and their actions. And Francis, at the end of his life, we now call him St. Francis in church history. At the end of his life, this ordinary and incredible man simply said these words, I have done what was mine to do. Now you must do what is yours to do. This prayer for God's will to be done on earth as it is in heaven is a reminder to us to do what is ours to do. You don't need to be Martin Luther King Jr. We've already had one of those. You don't need to be St. Francis. We've already had one of those. You don't need to be Ignatius. We've already had one of those. Instead, we get to submit ourselves to the restoring, loving, beautiful will of God, which enables us to look around our lives and ask ourselves, what's mine to do? What expression of heaven do I get to participate in here and now? So friends, we've been invited by God to become orienteers. We are right now, in the year 2020, encountering terrain that is largely unknown to many of us. Right? We see huge boulders of division. We see giant trees of injustice that we need to uproot. We see poisonous pandemic plants all around us. And Sometimes, in the middle of that jungle of things, it can be difficult to see the checklists, the flags, the markers that we need to hit. Right? 
it can be difficult to know exactly what career I need to step into or exactly how many kids I need to have or if I'm going to have kids or if I'm going to get married or what any of that is going to look like. But Jesus reminds us in this prayer that we have a compass with us. And that compass is the will of God. It reminds us the direction that we're going and points us the direction we should be. And he also reminds us that we each have a map, a specific outline of gifts that we are uniquely gifted with in order to bring the kingdom of heaven to earth, in order to realize it in our lives, in order to participate with God in that kingdom. So let's trust the compass and the map. Let's seek the will of God fervently with every ounce of our essence. Let's be people who recognize the goodness of heaven and step into the areas that God has given us to step into. Let's pray each day. What's mine to do? Let's pray for God's will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. Let's pray.